0: You're listening to For You Dub by Udub, a podcast exploring topics and perspectives in health and well-being with experts from across the University of Washington, brought to you by the Whole U, the University of Washington's Holistic Wellness and Engagement Program. Hello and welcome back to For You Dub by Udub, the Whole U's podcast. I'm very excited to dive into our topic today, I am joined in conversation from researchers and investigators across the University of Washington, working on a very special project called EMAR. EMAR is currently funded by the National Science Foundation as part of the National Robotics Initiative. This project is an interdisciplinary investigation of teen robot interaction, and it's looking at capturing adolescent stress levels During interactions with a social robot, and it's really an intervention in teen mental health and looking at how technology can really be a disruptor and hopefully a saving grace in this space. I'm very thrilled today to welcome Elin Björling from Human Center of Design and Engineering, Maya Chuckamuk from Computer Science and Engineering, and Patricia Alves Oliveira from Computer Science and Engineering. Thank you all for being here. I'm very excited to hear more about this project and, and your thoughts about uh, using robots in this space.
1: Thank you for having us. So I'm Elin Gerling and as you said, I'm in human centered design and engineering, but my background is really interdisciplinary, um, coming from psychology, um, going into an interdisciplinary health sciences degree. Um, But I've really been focused on adolescence and then in particular mental health as sort of a crisis going on in adolescence. And I'm really um, kind of a stress researcher at heart, realizing that stress impacts everything we do and every illness we have, it only makes things worse. So that idea of tackling stress seems like the low hanging fruit of how to make a big difference in a large population. Um, So I became really interested in stress and mental health in adolescence, um, and looking at sort of the inaccessible, but effective options for treatments for them and for self-care and things like that. um, And really wanting a new and innovative way to start addressing some of these problems. Um, So this idea um, in human-centered design, we sometimes talk about wild ideas and this robot really was a wild idea. Um, of if I, you know, if screens are not that engaging and cell phones are not that interesting um, and we really want teens to engage in um, practicing self-care techniques as well as offering some data so we can better understand how they're doing and what's going on with them. This was a wild idea of what about a social robot? Um, And as soon as I thought of that concept Um, I had to run and grab someone amazing like Maya, um, since I know nothing about robots, uh, or at least now I do, but at the time I really didn't. Um, So I needed um, an invest, like a sort of interdisciplinary team in order to launch this kind of a project. Um, And I'm so grateful that she said yes, Uh, and off it went. And we've learned a ton along the way, but that's kind of where it started. And so Maya,
0: have you ever been approached before for um, kind of projects and intersecting in this space? And I'd love to hear more about what that
2: was like for you to be approached and then um, your background as well. Definitely. So my background is much more technical than Elin's. Uh, So I did my undergrad in electrical electronics, engineering, and the mechatronics, actually building robots, and my PhD is in robotics, and uh, my expertise is in building um, complex robot systems that are usable for people. Um, Before this project, most of my work was focused on mobile manipulators. So these are robots with arms and wheels that go around and actually physically interact with the environment and do functional things. Um, And uh, the the role of the person was really to uh, tell the robot what it needs to do or, you know, program the robot. So um, when Elon approached me uh, with this idea, it was uh, sort of new to me, even though there has been a lot of work on using social robots to help people. Um, I had been a little bit wary of this area because of uh, the idea of replacing social interaction with people. Uh, but this was one of the cases where it was not about replacing, it was really about um, supplementing or uh, really creating a space that doesn't exist. Um, So one thing I'm sure will come up is how teens uh, want to talk, but they don't want to talk to their parents. They don't want to talk to their friends, their teachers, the counselors for various different reasons. And robots are like this unique thing that they might be willing to talk and might make a difference. Um, So I think that, that, that convinced me, basically, it convinced me that uh, social robots are, uh, can actually have a positive impact in this space. Um, I thought at first that, you know, social robots are easier than uh, making these functional robots that have arms and need to manipulate. But turns out it it definitely has its own unique challenges of like being engaging and uh, sort of having a fluent interaction with people and being believable and, um, you know, saying the right thing at the right time and things like that. So um, yeah, it's been, I've been learning about robotics myself, even though I was the robotics expert uh, to begin with.
0: That's awesome. I'm excited to learn more about that. Thank you both for being here. And Patricia, how did you find your way to this project?
3: Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I am a postdoc in this project. I'm very happy to be part of it because I've been learning a lot with uh, just Ellen and Maya and the interdisciplinarity around the project EMR. And that speaks a lot to my own interests, which are also in the uh, connection between a lot of fields. So uh, my background, uh, my undergrad was in psychology, but then I spent uh, three years in the computer science department working as a researcher before my PhD and then I decided to do a PhD in human robot interaction because I just thought robots are the perfect tool uh, for psychologists. At the time that, that was what I was thinking. Um, it would be another tool, uh, very predictable, the robot can say something, do something a thousand times and it would be still good for the patient. Uh, right now, I think of robots still as tools, but they they just go beyond that because they um, they can transform different fields, including design research. I'm very interested in understanding what are the best ways robots should look like, feel like, and even move like uh, to engage with us. And Imar just encapsulates everything. So after my PhD, I was really, really happy to be introduced to Maya and Ellen and, and to be accepted in this project. And um, yeah, it really allows me to expand the horizons of social robotics.
0: As I say, it sounds like it was perfect timing, like uh, all, all the stars aligned to, to bring your interests together and have this wonderful project to work on. I would love to just do a deep dive in. So what exactly is Emar? You know, we've heard the concept of the project. Can you tell dive in a little bit deeper there?
1: And I wanna add one more piece to the introduction just cause I don't wanna um, overlook it. But when this project started, um, Dr. Emma Rose, who's at University of Washington Tacoma, was also a huge piece in sort of getting it launched um, because she actually has a degree in human centered design and engineering. Um, so she was also part of the, the reason that I headed into the, that space as well. So we have a huge shout out to her um, as part of the impetus of how this whole thing got started. Uh, Okay, so back to the concept of what it is, and I think this is important to point out as what we sort of and what Patricia is like really has an expertise in participatory design, I would say, which is not that common still in robotics, um, but as a participatory design and research um, project, what EMAR is, is kind of ever evolving. Um, So we can talk about what we learned about what teens want from the robot, but the number one requirement we have in terms of how we're designing is we're making something customizable. Um, And that showed up at the very, very beginning of our work with teens before we had built anything, before we had done anything, we really quickly learned that teens are so diverse in both their design ideas what they think a robot should look like, and then what they think appropriate behaviors, um, kind of like what are expected interactions from a robot. We don't have robots um, in our lives. So we were really just um, sort of ideating and brainstorming about that. But the very first thing we learned is that teens have very different school communities and different teenagers. There's this broad diversity about what they need and want. And in order for this, particular robot to be able to gather data from teenagers that's authentic. Um, They told us it needs to be anonymous. We heard that right away. Um, We don't, people in school don't want the robot to recognize them, to approach them. So we sort of have this principle of it being teen-centric. The teen initiates the interaction. um, And then how teens thought the robot should behave and what the robot offers them is very unique to those communities. So thank goodness again, Maya knows what she's doing and we quickly pivoted into, oh, we're not making a robot that will look like this and behave like this and go to all these different places. We're actually making a a customizable robotic system that teenagers can actually customize and modify and even code such that we're confident it will be appropriate in the environment that it's implemented into. Um, so that that's what it's become. We're following the teens in these communities about what they need. And with that is the opportunity for those communities to gather data about themselves. And that's partly what makes it such a participatory tool. And then ideally, they'll share some of that anonymous aggregate data with us so we can, in turn, learn about what's going on in those communities and what's working and not working in relation to the robot. But it's a very highly customizable platform. One other thing to that is as the other thing we learned when we went about sort of measuring and addressing stress is teens really said, we need support. Like we're the, the data coming out of what we were doing with them was like, I would love it if it could help me with this, if it could provide and not give me advice. These are teenagers. So it was sort of like make space for me to kind of process stuff, help me process what I'm, what's going on. There's a lot of overwhelm, a lot of stress. So the other piece that we really pivoted towards pretty heavily is creating exercises and interactions with the robot that just support teens and things like identifying their emotions, expressing themselves, having a safe place to say, I'm having a really hard time. I'm really struggling right now. Just sort of an empathetic interaction. They have very clearly said that's something that, that's helpful for them. So we've those are the intervention kind of pieces we're implementing into the robot system.
0: So I'm curious on that kind of an anonymity, how do you implement where people can use the robot? Because I'm picturing in my head, I picture like a physical robot, which I know we've said, it's more of the kind of the customizable robotic system, but where where would you even access it?
3: Uh, so our idea for EMAR robots is to be a community robot for a school. We have been exploring more alternatives because schools are not such an easy place to be right now with the pandemic, Um, including now we are trying uh, to get together with libraries and to have a robot there. And some of the anonymity um, guidelines we are following come from interaction sessions with teens. Design sessions with teens where they prefer not to say their name, not to disclose any information to the robot. So the robot is behaving and interacting back to them in a way that can help them, but at the same time does not put in danger who they are, does not expose who they are. So if they talk with the robot, the robot would not record. And that also means most of the times the robot does not understand actually what they're saying. Which is something that could come across as a limitation, but actually teens see this as a strength um, and mostly associate that with a non-judgmental space, which Ellen was referring to, robot as a safe space to talk about problems. Um, so less is more in the case of EMAR, especially in terms of intelligence and uh, behavior for a robot.
0: And you know, alongside that, I'm also curious. I know, Ellen, you said your first idea kind of came of trying to find something outside of screens or outside of phones that are are less engaging. So what is it about maybe the robot that takes it a step further than say um, an interactive app or something in that space?
1: Um, And this is something I'm learning and I'll let Maya jump into, because again, she has a whole field of having sort of, or understanding this. But the thing that really strikes me at this point in time is that a social robot, if designed appropriately and designed for the population you're working with, um, allows for a social interaction, even if that robot isn't behaving like a person. Kind of like the human brings their socialness to this interaction. And I don't believe that happens on a cell phone and we we tested this on a computer versus the physical robot and so forth, and it's not the same. Um, so that that both the idea that the robot is embodied and that the robot has is cute and in some cases touchable has like you know some fuzzy parts to it and so forth that sort of sets up the interaction for me and my human part to be very social and I think there's something very therapeutic about a social interaction without any of the downsides of like Patricia was saying judgment or disclosing information that I'm not ready to disclose and so forth um, with humans. So I think it, it, it allows for the huge benefit of a social interaction without any downside And then potentially, and this is a hypothesis sort of, that by being social with a robot, I'd like to think that I'm then more capable and ready to be social with a human. So that idea of I could tell the robot something I'm not ready to say yet because I don't wanna be judged or maybe I'm not even sure what it is that I need to say. And I could just try stuff with the robot and maybe After doing that, I've heard myself, I feel a little more comfortable. I'm a little more clear about what it is that's going on. And now I'm ready to say it to my friend because I just feel a little more confident about what's happening. And I really think that pathway to, to just getting me ready to start talking doesn't happen on a screen or a workbook or like that's a social pathway. So, um. I found myself over time referring to Imar as like an invitation. So it's like starting this process that ideally, again, I hypothesize allows me to be a little more comfortable moving towards the human to human um, social interactions. And I don't know,
2: Maya knows a lot about the benefits yeah. of social robots so feel free to add to that. I think, I think that was a great answer. I think the you know what is it about a social robot this is the big question in the field that a lot of people have been asking and trying to kind of answer in different ways. Um, like Ellen said it's it's really about how people treat the robots how they not intentionally but just how they viscerally react to a robot as a social agent and Uh, It just puts the brain in a different mode, in the same mode as when you're working with somebody like when you're social Um, and that's uh, it can be more conducive to learning, for instance. So there is work in the field that looks at tutoring, learning a new language or even um, practicing uh, social emotional for younger kids. So things like uh, growth mindset. So. Um, they, there is basically evidence that when people work with a social robot versus an agent on a screen or a workbook or something comparable in terms of content, but different modality, that the social robot is more effective because of how people, you know, uh, treat it and what's where their brain is when they're doing that activity. I think there is some work with actually looking at the brain, like what's happening in the brain, and is it more similar to when you're with a human, um, At uh, you know, more controlled experiments with looking at much smaller scale things that, than what we're um, looking here. But uh, this, uh, this is kind of the understanding that it's, it's about how uh, people treat it.
0: You know, a lot of people feel like phones are making us less and less social. So it, it's cool to see that there's, there's this other technology in this other space that's really focusing on bringing the social connection back, but also in a safe space um, like you've been talking about for teens. I'm curious, and I know, I know your project's focused on teens, but do you think or can you postulate on whether something like this would be a successful kind of intervention with adults? Or do, do you think levels of comfortability with technology Kind of impact that
3: i think there is a value in robots independently of age um, and i think a lot of this is coming across in the field of human robot interaction where we've been seeing so many studies with robots for kids even for toddlers like robots that you can chew or you just learn to be tactile you learn about the world with robots um, but also on the other hand robots for older adults uh, where they, um, they get trained and stimulated cognitively with a robot. Also, robot as a tool for, for adults uh, in general that suffer for, from anxiety, depression, but also as a um, As a tool, for example, there is this study about a robot that is uh, like an interviewer, so they can train an interview with a robot before going into an interview. So there's just so many benefits and and the potential is very, very big that we are all maybe overly excited (laughs) with that. So definitely, I think uh, there is a need, especially in terms of mental health and health in general, that robots can sustain and serve because health is... uh, Health is for everyone, but not accessible to anyone at the same time uh, for many reasons. And so robots can serve as an alternative that can come um, in times of need when you can actually not go to a doctor or or, uh, another service, not to substitute it, but as a support tool.
0: Patricia, when we first connected, you told me a little bit kind of about how you guys worked very closely with, with mental health professionals to kind of think about what that experience and that kind of feedback from the robot looks like. Can we talk a little bit more about kind of how you came to, you know, knowing how the robot should interact best with, with sensitive topics. And then also maybe we can get into a little bit of how teens are, are they willing to work on on the mental health and um, has, has it been successful?
3: Yeah, I think this is about developing interventions that already exist, uh, evidence-based interventions for mental health, uh, such as cognitive behavioral therapy to a robot. And and that's where I think EMR is so valuable, because a lot of tools that are out there, such as apps for health, um, they were not clinically designed and not clinically tested. And therefore, a lot of professionals do not actually recommend them because they could be good, but they were not tested. And so (laughs) they can also be bad. Um, And one of the things we are carefully curating, as you're just mentioning very, very correctly, is to work with professionals of mental health professionals to develop interventions for robots. So these come, come across as activities for teens that are very short in time, like five minutes that they can do to alleviate stress, to recognize emotions, to build new skills. Um, and so what we are trying to do here is to translate already existing workbook activities dedicated to teens, to the robot, um, keeping that essence of the intervention. Um, and, and it has been successful. We, we did a study comparing those workbook activities with a robot. Um, and the content was the same, the modality was different. And basically what, what emerged is that teens were able to develop routines for their mental health uh, during two weeks with a robot. So uh, going into the conversation with a robot about their mental health was just more joyful than doing a workbook where they could skip the hard parts and it was uh, felt like a test. So that's one of the, of the yeah. good things.
0: It sounds like especially bringing in the the social interaction piece would be just such a a more transformative and maybe um, cognitively stimulating experience then.
2: One small bit of context, Um, as Elin said, the project actually started as uh, trying to collect data, right? We were, I mean, Elin would always say, um, how can we help kids when we don't have the data and we don't even know the scale of the problem? So it started as trying to collect data, And one of the very simple early interactions with some of the earlier versions of the robot was that it would ask you what is your stress level today and what is your mood today? And just these very simple questions. And one thing we noticed ourselves and heard from teens was that even just that moment of stopping to question, to look inside and assess your own stress level was a small moment of mindfulness and awareness that was also acting as an intervention. So that kind of opened the door to well, maybe the robot could do more than collect data. And it's not just passively absorbing, but it's it's doing something to help. Of course, the the awareness bit, so recognizing your stress level, we started looking deeper to, you know, understanding what emotions you might be feeling. So for a lot of teens, the uh, dominant emotion is anger. Like everything is reflected as anger, but actually it might, it might have a lot of you know, components to it. And it might be uh, that they're feeling hurt, but expressing it as anger. Uh, so like the emotional clarity part, so recognizing emotions was one of the first things we started looking and then realizing really that big space of interventions that exist but are currently only available in extreme cases of, uh, for instance, suicidal kids. At the moment, these are programs that are, for instance, like a six-month commitment. The whole family is involved. It's just, you know, and it's at that extreme case. So there's nothing between being completely happy and never stressed and, you know, being at that extreme that's available. So we're seeing EMAR possibly as filling that gap while getting inspiration from what we know works from the evidence uh, for these extreme cases.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like Emar's definitely starting some probably really important conversations, especially even among peers, if if they're willing to kind of take it that step further and and share that you know, uh, yeah, I've I've gone, I've used Emar, and it helped me with this, and kind of create that um, awareness and and sharing of we all deal with things, and that's you know part of the human experience. So um, I'm excited to kind of see where the project goes. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you're at currently right now um, and kind of hopes for the project for the future?
1: I think as a team, we've done a wonderful job pivoting as a result of the pandemic. So our, our, everything we do with teenagers is in their world, in their School, Um, we don't bring teens into the lab to look and talk about robots we bring equipment to them and we sit with them in their context and in their setting. Their home base, so to speak, to to help them envision like if this were actually here in the classroom, how would it feel what would it look like. Um, And as, as a result of the pandemic all of that work with them in school environments had to stop. And so we did pivot a little bit. It was an opportunity to explore what happens if EMAR is at home. So we did a a cute little study sending kits where they could use their phone as EMAR. And we replicated some of our software for them. And and they did beautiful designs and ideas about um, some of the differences of what EMAR would be like at home. It's hard to tell where we are with the pandemic, but we're still back to one of the core initiatives of the whole project was that it was a community-based tool that allowed teens to both record and see their own data as well as provide this kind of what we call a micro intervention for the everyday teen um, in a short amount of time. But how do we, the design, the big design question since the pandemic is how do we create a tool that's accessible? Not everybody can have one at home. That's just an absolute given. And we, again, are trying to reach the teen that doesn't necessarily have access or wouldn't have started seeing a therapist or maybe wouldn't bother buying a workbook about such and such. So the big question of where do they access this tool in a way that makes sense? And that's where, again, we're starting to look at collaborating with the public libraries because they are hopefully reopening and creating some community-based spaces. Um, They're really trying to be very teen-centric. And it's a good question of whether teens feel maybe even more comfortable at a library than at their local high school. So we have a lot to think about in in that space. Our next, this is kind of our final funded year of the project. And so we're hoping to implement the robot somewhere, hopefully maybe at a library and then a group of teens would both code up and operate and customize that robot and gather data from other teens and sort of collaborate with us in that way. But I think we're also looking at um, two different sort of potentials for EMAR, and one is what we've been talking about and articulating this idea that it could become more and more of an intervention tool. And so there could be another population for whom this is a home robot for a depressed teen to work through some of these workbook activities that are really, really important and crucial at that point in time. You know, so there's sort of a a therapeutic avenue you could imagine where, because it's so customizable, we could get it ready for a very particular population. And then there's this other uh, kind of avenue where the thing itself is so customizable, we are looking at gaining funding to build it out as a customizable platform that could then be for any population. So colleagues of ours who are like, I'm working with adults with some cognitive deficits And I'm doing co-design with them and social robot stuff, but I don't have a robot that can be easily co-designed that could, you know, so, so we're also looking at the, the interesting way in which how we've gone about developing EMAR, the core of EMAR, which we call V7 really has some potential to help in a whole bunch of different populations because of that high level of customizability and programming. Um, and that's a unique thing to social robots, having a, a, an affordable tool that's customizable, programmable, perfect for co-design. So that's another avenue we're kind of looking at that this project just to sort of organically lent itself to filling that void in that direction. And it seems worthwhile to keep going.
3: Another project that kind of spin off from EMAR was um, using... The intervention content and the robots to teams in very specific life conditions. So right now, the transitions project is about teams that are transitioning from prison to back to their communities. And during the incarceration time, basically, they have a lot of structure around them, including mental health professionals available. And then the transition and the structure is lost. And they go back to a place that can trigger some behaviors that are not necessarily beneficial to them. So uh, the robot, we are trying to investigate how the robot could support that transition. And together with mental health professionals from prison and with the teams in prison themselves, we are co-designing what types of interventions do they need the most. A lot of them are towards uh, emotion regulation, especially anger and sadness, but also skill building, how to make new friends and how to apologize for mistakes. And so um, having this robot they can rely on in moments of need when they are already in their communities uh, is is another opportunity to explore um, the many benefits of EMAR.
0: It's amazing. So I know you just mentioned kind of those three specific, I guess you could say tracks or or interventions for that population. Did you find for, uh, in your tests with local teens, in our, in our area, any particular interventions were more used or um,
1: any insights on how are, are we more stressed
0: than expected or less or?
1: Coming from doing stress research for years, this problem is getting so much worse so quickly. And I think we think about stress as common, but I think what we're seeing in adolescents is quite extreme when you think about the many ways in which they're stressed. So externally stressed from global warming, climate change, gun violence, and then all the internal stress, the school stress of exams and so on and so forth. And I would argue what we're starting to see is what we would call kind of chronic stress, that this generation is suffering chronic stress, which is heavily correlated with depression, all kinds of physical and mental stuff. Kind of being a teenager, I would argue, is kind of becoming a mental health population. And I just conducted a study on another project where we just grabbed a community sample, um, and I believe about 65% of the community sample was clinically depressed, was measurably depressed from just a quick grab of Seattle area teens. So I think this is just an area where we've been pleasantly surprised that all the mental health professionals we've reached out to have been happy to collaborate with us. Because I think if you're in that space, you kind of see the desperate need for anything at all that's going to help reach this population and improve their mental health. So we're at that point where most People who are aware of the problem are willing to try things. we, We desperately need innovation. We don't nearly have the resources to meet the demand on a school level and on a mental health level. And that's even true now of adults in the United States. Like, There's just not enough mental health providers to make up for the demand we have in this country. So I forget if that even answered the original question and I'll let Patricia jump in too, but.
3: Yes, Um, so some of the main uh, requests from community teams, teams from local teams has been in interventions that calm them down, that provide some calming moments. And they like a lot of visualization meditations. (laughs) So where they can visualize something good for them and skill building. So how can they build new skills when they are in a good moment mentally, Um, what can they do more? For example, thinking about values, how do they think about their future, especially when they're finishing up high school? Um, What would be the priorities for their lives? Who do they want to become? And just laying these things down and thinking about them and realizing if they want to change them or not. So these are mostly the type of interventions they really like.
0: It's very striking just to hear, especially locally, that high of a number. I think you said 60%, right, Elin? Have you faced pushback from anywhere or um, maybe from parents or are there any concerns that have come up that you'd like to
1: speak to? Um, I will just say that we, from the beginning, internally, like amongst our team, have talked about the benefits and the risks of this type of project, of this type of tool. I think we started with uh, the very first concerns we heard, well actually the very first concerns we heard were from teens who suggested that if we built such a thing, this is before we built anything, um, school administrators would take it over and use it for surveillance. And we heard that in two different places at two different times very well articulated and so that was on our radar of how do we build a teen centric tool that remains teen centric how do we design something that's very difficult to use for other purposes and that became part of the design requirements teens were very clear that it should not be networked to the internet and i think they're growing up with this they're not they're very savvy they're very smart right? That, that something could, nefarious could start happening if this were online or somebody was able to get control of it online. So it being locally networked with an opportunity for them to get networked to share data that's anonymous, We that's all part of the design. We've heard a little bit about screen time. To that, we again, I think about a concept I call designing for exit where we Again, this idea that the the robot's supposed to be an intervention and not something you would become uh, addicted to. So it's supposed to invite you to kind of build your skills and behaviors such that those are more useful in your social relationships. But we have to keep thinking about this. Is there a particular teen for whom this might become addictive or isolating? And we have to think about that as we go along and gather data. And we also have to think about the classic, will Imar get hacked? Would someone at school use this robot for the wrong purposes, a teenager even, to use it against another teenager? When we think about everything that's happening with social media, my goodness, gun violence, like what in what ways might this be misused, always has to be some of the questions we're asking ourselves. Um, And we'll continue to explore that as we get to this idea of implementation. I will say one more thing that has come up many, many times, and this is where I think that very first concern of teens is really spot on, is that administrators, I don't think we've heard it from parents. We have interviewed parents and teachers and administrators and administrators have asked, could we have the robot recognize certain words like suicide? or gun? And could the robot potentially help in that kind of a situation? And very purposefully, because the the design is not about surveillance, very purposefully, it will not be designed to have that capability to kind of remove that idea off the table. So the way I like to think about it is, if you were journaling, and just writing stuff like getting thoughts off your chest, putting something somewhere. Teens very clearly told us if somebody were listening, listening, monitoring, using it for surveillance, they just would never use it. They have to have complete trust that it's just kind of anonymous and a safe space. So we, that's a design tension right there about like, you want to be supportive of the community. You want to provide the teens what they need to use this tool for that purpose. But there is a heavy Right now, push towards more surveillance, more awareness of what's actually going on in, the, in sort of an argument for safety. But EMAR is not designed for that purpose. So we likely will build a design that doesn't allow for that um, at any time. But there is that tension. there's always gonna be a little bit of that tension of what is it supposed to do and what could it do? And a lot of times what we can do with a robot is definitely not what we should do with a robot. Um, so we have to constantly kind of weigh the pros and the pros and cons and the benefits and the risks.
0: I'm really glad you speak to that because it also makes me think, you know, on the flip side though, ideally projects like these are helping to improve certain, you know, issues like that. Maya, anything you want to add from your robotics background kind of in social robotics and looking at kind of the intentional design in that
2: space? The the worry that we've had of of teens thinking the robot is more intelligent than it actually is. For instance, we've worked on a project where the robot basically try, pretends to listen. So what it does is uh, nod at appropriate times to emulate active listening, like to show that it's, it's hearing you or it's, we use it for when we understand things and we agree. But for the robot, it's really just nodding so that you have that space. You're not just talking to yourself or to the air, but uh, you can direct it to something. The worry there was that it is, you know, pretending to listen, but uh, kids might think that it is actually listening and it heard you. Like if you told it, um, you know, I'm thinking of harming myself, something like that and it, it's nodding, it actually heard you. And you might have expectations about how it would respond or what it would do with that information versus we need to be very clear that it's only pretending to listen and it's giving you a space to talk, but it's not really understanding what you're saying. And it's not going to tell anyone and it's not going to do anything with that information. So
0: we're, we're giving you an answer to a question you're asking or something like that.
2: I'll
1: add that another thing we found from the from the start was that teens when we showed them videos and images of of current robots that are being used in research and kind of on the market they really don't like much of what's out there right now and again it has to do with that idea that it's AI and so forth and so we knew we weren't going to we weren't going to go for trying to design something that seems to be networked and intelligent, they really told us we do not want an intelligent being. That's not something attractive to them at all. Even though in the market right now, that's the real push, right? Everybody seems to think that's important. And teens have said to us, we don't want that. Like we want less is more as Patricia said in the beginning. And I think that still holds true, especially in terms of things like machine learning and AI. One thing
0: we haven't talked about yet is kind of how the design looks. I'm picturing like a Furby in my brain.
3: (laughs) So basically, EMAR is, um, let's say, a 50 centimeter robot, something like that. It can be on a table, can be on a floor. And it's uh, made of two screens, which we call a belly screen. It's a tablet. And then... um, Uh, eye screen, uh, face screen, which is a smartphone, but all of that is encapsulated in a body. So you don't really see it as two different things. And it has a robust core that then can be customized by teenagers, whatever way they want. So um, a few few, uh, generated designs were actually very different from each other, but uh, on top of my mind, I have something that they really like is organic things on the robot they like a place where they can put for example a flower on the robot but also the robot as an animal so as a dog or as a bear something that is more animal like actually and that comes comes in line with this conversation of having a robot that is not very smart also does not look like very smart right so they can customize it to uh, their their own perceived intelligence of the robot but also they, they really like the idea of having a robot as an aquarium, which would be more like as a presence in their room. Maybe a comparison could be the presence lights that usually babies have. But in this case, it's, it's actually a robot that is there. It's a presence. They don't feel alone. And it's not judging them, but it's keeping them company.
0: As we close, what would you like listeners to think about when it comes to projects like these, projects intersecting tech and health, and also covering current
1: teen mental health needs? This is such a big problem, teen mental health, that I think the implementation of a robot for the purpose of mental health allows for these interactions with teens and the robot and that level of intervention, but it also allows for a community very clearly making a decision that mental health is an important topic. So on a library study that I'm on and another study, one of the things that teens expressed is the fact that we were working on a mental health design together was what made them feel a lot better. And they wanted more discussion of mental health and more time to talk to mental health with each other. And this is while we were working on a virtual reality project. So I think there's a this entire thing is only a little bit about the robot and a lot about the idea that a community decides to make this a priority and to make it a teen-centric, teen-led kind of priority. And I, again, hypothesize that that might be a really, really impactful decision. So you'll have the individual interactions with the robot that might be impactful, but as a community, it might have an incredible um, impact to say we're going to start making mental health a priority and your mental health a priority and we're going to let you guys drive how you want to do this and how this is going to look and feel. Um, and that's where I'm really interested to see what happens to a community on the community level when we have a tool like that implemented.
2: I, I love that point from Elin and I wanted to add that a similar effect has happened in this team ourselves becoming more aware about mental health all the undergrads, that uh, undergrads, graduate students that have been on the project uh, becoming more aware just for themselves. And then secondly, I was gonna sum it up as like, we've made some progress, but there we just have so much more work to do.
3: I wanted to follow up on that and also say that teens are very special and mental health is a very special field because it has its stereotypes, right? And um, teens are also a population that they're not children, they're not adults, they depend on parents, so mental health is costly. And how to explain to a parent they need help for that, and how do parents react when they themselves did not know there was a higher problem with their own teen and they need to do something. Or not, some parents <laughs> don't. Um, so it's a space with dependencies and independencies. For example in the transitions project teens can be judged as adults for a crime but then for a lot of things they are children and they are dependent on an ecosystem and they are not responsible uh, for their own actions in certain spaces right so it's it's a confusing and fluctuating uh tension between those dependencies and so i think it really made us aware of how to design for all of these different things uh, in a robot is is uh, an added value, um, not just to to know more about policymaking, um, but also about just their own ecosystem. Where do they live, and how is their world built, and how can a robot integrate all of these uh, particularities?
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of For You Dub by You Dub, a podcast produced by the whole you. You can listen to more episodes and subscribe on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the Whole U YouTube channel. Learn more about episodes, find resources mentioned, and follow our journey at www.wholeu.uw.edu forward slash podcast.